Well, the Israel team is back, and uh, they had a great time, and things went well for them, including my wife, uh, Becky, and just so, just to reassure you. But Pastor Don, not at all surprisingly, was a little more worn out from the trip than he thought, and so originally he had planned to preach today, but uh, wasn't able to, just kind of, so he asked. And Pastor Ben's schedule um, at the end of the week didn't really give him time to prepare, so it's my privilege to share God's Word with us together again today. I invite you to come with me to Psalm 95 as we think through this series of visions of God in the Psalms. And in a way... What we'll really be focusing on in this psalm is our response to God. If I were to ask you what one word is most often and most significantly, in other words, it's a word that really matters, misunderstood and misdefined and misused in Christianity, including our kind of evangelical Christianity today, I wonder what word would be in your mind. Those of you who know me probably are guessing which one I'm going to say, and you're probably going to be right. And that is the word worship. It's so crucial, obviously. But if when you hear or think the word worship, you think first of all, or mainly, or mostly, music, or singing, or listening and watching while somebody else sings, you're in the mainstream, but I would hopefully humbly say you are way off because singing or making music is not what any of the key Bible words for worship means in both the Hebrew and the Greek, that is the Old Testament or the New Testament. None of the words primarily or at their core mean music or singing. And yet we hear things like, well, we'll have a time of worship and then there'll be the sermon. And we know the people who lead the music in services today, they used to be called, by the way, ministers of music. Now what are they called? Worship leaders. I don't mean to hammer away, although I think we should change, but (laughs) it's just, I say that, it's, it's not what the word fundamentally means. It's faking us out every time we hear it. What then, when the book of Psalm calls on us, come let us worship the Lord, what is it calling on us to do? What is at the heart of the activity that it is summoning and inviting us to? To begin to answer that question, we go to Psalm 95, and at first it'll sound like, wait a minute, this is opposite of what you just said. But it isn't. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Is that one of the things that we're supposed to do? Absolutely. And we'll see how it fits. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. 
And for that, we're like, well, that's more metaphorical. You know, so that's another discussion. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Let us, what's our music and song supposed to do? Extol him with music and song. Why? Because he deserves it. He's worthy. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. All of that says, he's an amazing being. He's powerful and majestic, and he's sovereign, and he's in control. No wonder we're supposed to extol him and praise him. But then verse 6. Come, let us bow down. And the NIV adds in worship, and that helpful explain. But you know what it really literally says? Come, let us bow down, comma, bow low. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The three main biblical words, almost all the cases where in our English Bibles it's translated worship. The three main biblical words for worship, three key meanings is what I want us to focus on to start with. And for the first one, I asked Dan to come and help me out. And you're probably like, what's up with all the act-out illustrations lately? Uh, but I've been here almost about 11 years. I've only done it twice, so chill out. I have no reason to think that I'll necessarily do it again. But honestly, I want us to see the physicality, the actual activity. Sometimes in Bible times, one human being would do this to another. Joseph worshipped Pharaoh. It's not translated that way when it's a human being do it, understandably. But this is literally, at the core, Psalm 35 and a million other places where you read it in the Bible. This is what it means. And even more literally, it means... More literally still, it would be to kiss his foot or his shoe. Thank you. I know it's like, oh, that's odd. <laughs> but what does that position signify? What does that action say? That's total vulnerability. That is abject surrender and submission. And when one person did it to another person, it means you win. You're the superior. I acknowledge it, and I acknowledge the implications of it. Once I get up, I'm going to be your slave. I'm going to be your servant. You're the great king. Is that what you mainly mean when you hear the word worship? So that's the first word, to bow down, to prostrate oneself to the ground. 
as a sign of surrender, submission, and allegiance. The second main Bible word is to profoundly revere and respect. To just in light of how impressive and weighty a person is, you highly regard and honor them. And the third word means to serve as the slave to the superior. Prostrate yourself to the ground in submission. Profoundly revere and regard and respect. Serve from now on as the slave to the superior. Those are the Bible words for worship. <clears throat> Sometimes we forget what we do or why we do what we do, even as church, as Christians. So just be reminded when Christians get together, at least traditionally, when they meet and assemble together, what do we, on a Sunday morning that is like this, what do we typically call it? If it's business, you assemble together, you might call it a meeting, or you might call it a conference. But when Christians gather together to do what we do together on a Sunday morning, what has it traditionally been called? A service. Why? Because we're supposed to be here to serve our great king. That's why you're here. That's why you gather. You're come to serve God. Well, you say, well, how do I serve God? I just sit here. You better not. You serve him by coming with your praise. You have been blessed and gifted and helped and healed and enriched and rescued this past week. You ought not come saying, well, I just had it coming. I'm just entitled to that. What have you done for me lately? No. You render the service that he deserves of giving him praise and specific thanksgiving. You serve God that way. You come and you serve him. You're supposed to. It's fallen out of favor in our evangelical circles too much of the time. You're supposed to come and confess your sins. Why? You swore allegiance to him. But you live this way sometimes and you weren't living in allegiance. And you didn't live out your devotion and you didn't live out. That matters. And yes, we come privately and that's very meaningful and important. But it matters, too, to confess our sins, our omissions, our rebellions to God, to say the same thing about him that he says. We serve God that way, too. You come to him, and you present your offerings. Why? Because his work needs to be funded. And you're his servants carrying it out. You come to him, and through the course of the morning, you serve God in different ways. Teaching, leading in music, greeting and pointing people the right way so that their experience here can be as meaningful as it can be. Fundamentally, you come to serve the Lord by giving heed to his word to you. He wants to remind you who you are and who he is and all that he is for you and all that that means in terms of your lived out life allegiance to him. The primary act of worship is rightly 
paying attention and receiving his word. That's why I am no fan at all when people say, we'll have a worship time, and then there will be the message. Someone who says that must not know what the Bible words for worship really mean. Let me ask you this. How many of you, at some point in your churchianity life, have been in a get-together, and there was singing going on, and not enough people were clapping, and so the worship leader said, come on, clap, 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 it's in the Bible, clap, and it is in the Bible, and there's every reason for you to clap, and clap joyfully, that's all great, that's all scriptural, truly I'm all for it, but how many of you in all your years of churchianity have been told, all right, knees to the ground now, we're going to kneel now, we're going to bow down, we even read it, and we stay sitting, well, that's metaphorical. It's not when we're clapping, apparently. That's quite literal. Why do we never go knees to the ground? When that is actually a Bible meaning of what worship is. So, knees to the ground, submission, declaring allegiance to the one that we revere in order to serve him from now on. I would love it if from now on, when you hear, say, think, write, worship, that's the meaning you attach to it. It would reshift some things in the way that we talk, and I think in a way that matters. With these meanings for worship in mind, go with me to Matthew chapter 4. And it's the story of Jesus' temptation. We'll pick it up in about verse 9. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. All this will I give you. He is the God of this age. He's telling Jesus, forget about this path of the cross that God the Father's marked out, marked out for you, the way to which you'll get to all the kingdoms of this world and all authority. Forget that. I've got a shortcut for you. All this will I give you if you bow down and sing me a chorus. No, that's not what it means. If you bow down and worship me. The first word literally is rarely used. It actually means fall down, fall to your knees. We hear it, O Holy Night, at Christmas. If you Satan, if you fall to your knees and worship me, that's the word for prostrate yourself, pay homage, a movement of the body made in submission to someone. If you fall down and pay homage to me, Satan says, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship, prostrate yourself face to the ground, the Lord your God, and then what's the next word? And serve him only. 
So these words, they appear at key times. That's how we can be sure of what they mean. Romans chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to do what? To present yourselves, to offer your bodies. That is, bow the knee to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your what? Reasonable service. We're in New America, your spiritual service of worship. It really is the truth that all of life is worship for a Christian. That doesn't mean that we go around singing all the time. It means all of life is lived out service to God because we bowed the knee in submission to God and declared ourselves to be in subjection to him. So the way that you parent and the spouse that you are, the way that you do your vocation, the way that you engage with the rest of the congregation, it all is, it beautifully all weaves together. It's all service, worship to God, your great king. And so, this is where we're at. Every human being is born not free and independent. That's a major myth that we even are sort of faked out into thinking. But people are not born aut autonomous, are they? They're born with a master. They are, the Bible says, in slavery to sin. Now that's not polite or fun to say, but when you watch out how human lives actually go, it looks like something weird's going on. It looks like there's some evil, dark side pulling and controlling, making people make bad, self-destroying choice again and again and again, apart from God's grace and truth. And that's what the Bible says. You're in slavery to sin. You already have, you arrive in your rebellion with a master. Unless we are led by redeeming grace through the truth of the gospel, to stop serving and submitting to that terrible master, but the gospel teaches us, wait a minute, the true Lord, the true king, is God and his son Jesus Christ. And by his grace, he breaks the power of canceled sin and we're released from that dominion, that bondage. The only way to be saved, literally rescued from that terrible submission is to come under submission to Jesus Christ. There are only two ways to live. There are only two kinds of human beings, including in the room this morning. Service to sin and Satan or submitted service to God. Romans 6, 17, thanks be to God. You used to be slaves to sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves to God and slaves to righteousness. Colossians 1, it's really kind of the language of a hostage rescue operation. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and translated, transferred us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. But we arrived in a kingdom the place where Jesus reigns, the place where Jesus rules. The truth is, we're all worshipers as human beings. This to me has been a, a really key insight. And Tim Keller has a book called Counterfeit Gods that really helps spell this out true also. 
One writer says the whole world, Christian and non-Christian, worships. Everyone bows down to something. Everyone adores someone or something to the point of surrendering to it and being mastered by it in the hope that it will save them. That is, make them truly happy. That's what salvation ultimately does. We want, we're wired for happiness, for meaning, for fulfillment. That true and fullest human flourishing and happiness. We crave it. We do everything we can to find it. And so we're all worshipers seeking that Savior. C.S. Lewis says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. This is the essence of sin and the story of all our lives. We have all set our hopes onto something or someone we thought was really impressive and important. We revered it. So we examine the thing. We lean on it a little bit. We test it. We taste it. It seems good. We respect it and revere it a little more. So we lean more of our life and hope and happiness on it. It's going pretty good. But pretty soon we trust enough to place really the full weight of our soul upon it. This is what I'm all about. If I have this, unhappy and then crash we end up disappointed or the bible puts it put to shame despairing even why because it wasn't god and everything crumbles under the weight of worship Except God. Some people, boy, it's their kids. And they know the right answer on Sunday is, I love God the most, my happiness, my meaning, my fulfillment, it's God. It's God. But for some, it's work, it's just sort of professional success or just success, period, in the eyes of others. If I only had that, because I didn't get it from human sources I had hoped to get it from, that I had reasonable expectation to get it from. So now I've got to get it from you. Paul Tripp says, you see, whether we know it or not, every human being lives in search of a savior. We're all being propelled by a quest for identity, inner peace, and some kind of meaning and purpose, and we all look for it somewhere. But here's the bottom line. Looking to something in creation to get what only the Creator can give will always result, and it's striking that he says that, in addiction of some kind. The thing that you hoped would serve you pulls you into its service. And what seemed like freedom ends up being, bond ends up being bondage. The thing is not the problem. What you've asked of it 
is. And so the only real salvation is, again, to be taught by the gospel, I was created and made for God. I've got to get reconnected to him. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all that you are, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's another way of saying worship him and worship him only. He gives us this crucial insight in Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve two masters. That's important for us to say too because that's where a lot of us are at. That's the deal we've tried to strike. Lord, I get it. I used to be completely irreligious, but not anymore. I've sort of connected to the church. I've sort of connected to Christianity. And, you know, so I get it. You're up there. You're important. But I tell you what, there is still in my life. This really, I, I love this. I really do. And I get a lot from this. That's why when my mind drifts, it goes to this. And when I'm experiencing the this, I'm pretty happy. And when I get less of it, I'm kind of devastated. That's another master. And Jesus says, not, the word doesn't mean you're not allowed to serve two masters. He says, you won't be able to. And if you think about it, that's right. If you actually had two literal masters and one wanted you to do one thing on Monday morning, and one wanted you to do something else on Monday morning, they can't serve both of them. You'll, in actuality, love the one and hate the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. Give it up. Stop trying to serve God and whatever it is. But what we need to be able to do is to see how these other loves, these other good things that are in fact gifts from God that do bring us happiness and do give us meaning, what we've got to see is how to put them in the right place so that they're a part of our primary devotion to God. So that I love my family as I love God. And because I love God, that determines how I love my family. Again, in a very practical matter, you love your children best when they experience that you love God first. To see how these things rightly go together. <clears throat> it ends up, you can, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God once you've understood this fundamental principle that all of life is lived out loving service and submission to him. Kind of a longer quote, but worship is adoration of, devotion to, and complete submission to God. Right worship strives to relate all human and desire and activity to God. That is, nothing in my life is not going to be consciously committed to how it fits. It's an exercise in reorientation toward one all-sufficient end. All human desires and activities are put into question. How does this love, this commitment, this activity avow or disavow, affirm or disclaim my relationship to God as the fundamental expression of my identity and destiny? 
C.S. Lewis put it a lot simpler. I was not born to be free. I was born to adore and to obey. We are literally constituted and created to be creaturely in submission to a superior. We don't get to decide that. This whole madness of kind of deciding our own identities that's going on now, we are God-defined. God identifies who and what we are. And we were made in his image to know him. That's how we work, right? That's how we function, right? If we don't get that fixed and repaired and restored, and we keep casting about, I want to get a God, I want to get a Savior, and we never find the true and living God and only Savior, it's never going to get worked. We're never going to get saved. We'll continue in the misery of our misguided submission to the wrong master and the wrong servant. Bob Dylan, that great theologian, sang, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And when he sang that, I'm sure mostly unwittingly, he was expressing the biblical truth that submission to a superior is not an evil, it's a function of our creatureliness. That's what we are, that's how we work. So my true salvation, that is to say my happiness, comes when I submit and start to serve, when I find the right master and the right God. Consider all that the Bible says about being God's servant. It's all over the place, and it's weird that we miss it as much as we do. It fills the book of Romans, the epistle of grace. But probably the most compelling example, again, to me, is the Lord Jesus himself, who said, remember, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened. Because living as a sinner who's supposed to be connecting to God in God's world, living disconnected to him is a mess. And it wears you out. And you keep imagining you're going to get rest and relief from other places, and you never do, and it keeps not working. And you say, come to me, Jesus says, and I'll give you rest. By what means? Take my yoke upon you. Wait a minute. Yoke is an instrument of submission. Exactly. Because my yoke, Jesus says, compared to the one you're wearing, my yoke is well-fitting and easy. And my burden, compared to the one you're carrying, with that bogus, custom-designed God that you manufactured for yourself, 
My burden is light. The worst mistake we can make is to think when it comes to salvation, forgiveness in heaven, yay, the good parts. Submission to God, serving Him, ugh, there's the catch. Please, for yourself, for your children, for whoever you minister to, the submission is the salvation too. The service, the new life, that's the blessing. That's the benefit too. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. What does it mean to worship? Surrender in submission in order to joyfully serve from now on. God governs us by his word. And remember, as we saw last Sunday night in the waters of baptism, it all comes together. Salvation arrives. When taught by the gospel that Jesus is the Lord who saves, I come to the waters of baptism. And if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. That's your submission. And then you'll be saved. Then and only then is when salvation arrives in a life that was supposed to be serving his lordship all along. I want to close. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're not going to sing, although we could have sung a great song that summarizes this. I surrender all. That's not some post-Christian experience. That's becoming a Christian. But in Philippians chapter 2, and a lot of my sermons in here because I think it's just a beautiful climactic point in the work of salvation that God does. The Apostle Paul says that once Jesus accomplished his atoning work on the cross that saved us from our sins, verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is the title that's above every other title. That at the name, the title, the one given to Jesus, every knee should bend. That's where everything's headed. If you've come in real repentance and faith to Christ, that's already started. And so... If you're physically able to, if you're not, don't at all worry about it. This isn't the best but place to do it in a sense. But if you're physically able to this morning, I want you to bend the knee. Go kneel before the Lord right now. Not metaphorically. Really. If you mean it and what it expresses. Because this is where we're headed. Every knee will bend, and every tongue will confess and declare what I want us to confess and declare together this morning. Say it with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. Father in heaven, may this be a moment that we remember
that teaches us to know what it means to worship. It starts with surrender and submission. And it can never really happen where those are absent. And help us to see and to know that we will only ever find our real joy and freedom and happiness and fulfillment with knees bent and with heart and life bowed to the great and gracious Savior and Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We're dismissed. Thank you.